The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. So about two months ago, I had the privilege to give a message right here at Lightersburg Campus. Uh, And in that message, I was able to share a little bit about my brother-in-law, whose name is RJ. And I shared the fact that RJ recently, it was a couple months prior to that, he enlisted to join into the Army. Then I talked about how he got equipped through the Army's training, and then as a result, he was ready to be deployed. And so, in fact, it was very shortly after I gave that message that RJ was deployed to Iraq to fight for the protection of freedom over there. So the time since then, the last two months or so, has been an interesting season for sure for Ashley, me, and her family. I think we've all seen war movies. We've seen these scenes in war movies where this family has this tearful goodbye, where they say goodbye to their loved one with the understanding that they're not going to see them or hear from them at all for quite a while. Maybe with the exception of this handwritten letter that takes weeks and weeks to cross the Atlantic and to reach them. But it's been really interesting for us to notice and experience how much this has changed, how different, uh, how different this really is today as a result of the massive advancements that have taken place in technology. Because the reality for Ashley, me, and her family has been that, that RJ has actually been able to FaceTime us, text us, Snapchat us on a fairly regular basis. He's been posting on Instagram and Facebook these pictures of him looking rough and tough and rugged over there. And so it's been very, very interesting. However, as thankful as we've been to be able to have this communication with RJ, I'm not going to lie, it has brought with it uh, this unique tension, this kind of unique tension that we felt throughout this season. And this was most powerfully felt two weeks ago. It was two Wednesdays ago when we received a text message from RJ that said something along the lines of, well, I just survived my very first missile attack. So we read this, we, we weren't sure even how to take this or to receive this. We weren't sure, was this miles away? Like, is he in trouble right now? And so we texted RJ back for more details. But all he was really able to say was just check the news. So we checked the news, we didn't see anything, and then we waited a couple of minutes. And before long, we started to see all of these really, really big headlines popping up. And these headlines read, Iran has begun firing missiles at U.S. bases in Iraq. So our heart rates began to rise, and then we completely stopped hearing from RJ. And so I never watched the news at all. But on this night, it was completely different. On this particular evening, news was not about entertainment. Instead, on this night, Ashley and me were desperate to find any and all information that we could to know if RJ was okay. So I was scanning every news website that I could. I was refreshing pages to get the most recent updates. And as I did this, the reports grew from five missiles being launched to 10 missiles to 20 missiles, from one base being hit to two bases being hit to three bases being hit. And on top of the attack itself, Iran was adding these intimidating words saying that this was only just the start, saying that this was only just the very beginning. So hours passed and we hadn't heard from RJ at all things were starting to to feel very, very, very real. People on Twitter all over the place were saying that World War III was literally about to begin. Everyone, and I do mean everyone, had an opinion on the topic. One group of people was completely cursing and blaming this other group of people, saying that they were at fault, and then vice versa. This other group was completely blaming and cursing uh, the first group. Hatred and anger and fury were being poured out and expressed by every side online. Uh, 
And in the midst of all this chaos and confusion, all that Ashley and me wanted to know was just, is RJ okay? That's all we cared to know was just, is RJ all right? And so on that night, we did the only thing that we were actually able to do. And so we sat down on our couch, we held hands, we cried, and we just prayed, God, would you just protect RJ? Would you keep him safe? God, would you just give him peace right now? So praise God, RJ was completely unharmed. He was completely okay. We were able to get back in touch with him, I think, the next day. Um, as a result of these attacks, there was actually no loss of life. And so we praise God for that. We're really, really thankful for that. And in general, right now, the situation, for the most part, has de-escalated. So a lot of things to praise God about there. So why did I share that story? I did not share that story with you today just so that I could have some group therapy up here on the stage. And I also did not share that story today just for the sake of stressing you out, but I shared that story today for a reason. I shared it because I believe that that story can actually help illustrate an issue for every single one of us that I believe hits much closer to home. Because I wanna ask you a question, right? We hear this story, we feel this tension and frustration, maybe anger in our hearts when we hear it. But is it possible? Is it possible that in your daily life, in my daily life, that we too exemplify similar behavior to what we just heard right there in that story? Is it possible that even though war and battle might not literally be on the line, that in our daily lives, we too have the tendency to place ourselves within groups and draw lines of separation to keep other people on the other side? Is it possible that we too build up walls of hostility that we hide behind and then with our words and actions, we lob bombs and missiles at people that we choose to see as our enemies. And so without forcing you to answer that question out loud, I will say that this is an issue that has been faced by many, many, many people for a very, very, very long time. And so this morning, <clears throat> we are continuing in our series that is called All Things New. And throughout this series, we've been focusing on this book that is found in the Bible that is called Ephesians. Uh, this book is really a letter that was written by the world's greatest missionary 2,000 years ago at the very beginning of the church. And, and the man that wrote this, his name was Paul. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus around 62 AD. So this is important to note because uh, first, Ephesus is a part of modern-day Turkey, or it is modern-day Turkey. But at this time in the first century, Ephesus was a part of the Roman Empire. And this is important. Because for you to be a part of the Roman Empire meant that you adopted and adapted to the Roman culture. And the Roman culture was one that was very, very much characterized by this one idea. And that is that people's worth, value, and identity was defined by what they could accomplish or achieve. That someone's worth was completely attached to what can you achieve and what can you accomplish. This meant that within the society that children were literally looked at as subhuman. That boys and girls that were born were very often just discarded to the trash pile because they were seen as subhuman, because they weren't able to achieve or accomplish as much as an adult would. So it was because of this that Paul challenged the church in Ephesus to live differently. He wanted them to know, and he wants to speak, God wants to speak this to us this morning, to know that your identity is not something that we have to strive to achieve, but instead your identity is actually something that you are able to receive. And so it's in the second chapter of Paul's letter that he addresses this hostility that I've already been discussing this morning. So let's jump in here at verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 2. Here's what Paul writes. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called the uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. 
In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So for the next 10, maybe 15 minutes of my message, I want to talk about circumcision. I want to go in-depth, just excruciating detail about what circumcision is and what it's all about. All right. Okay, you guys didn't fall for that. I'm not really going to do that. I'm not really going to do that. But listen, if there's any kids in here, if you have any questions about circumcision, please feel free to ask your parents on the car ride home after church today. They would love, they'd love to answer any questions that you have. But, but in all seriousness, uh, the point that, that Paul is really highlighting here is that previously there has been this crystal clear separation and division and hostility between two different groups of people. So these groups are first the Jews, these are the people of Israel. These are uh, people that have this special heritage, a connection to a covenant promise from God that they would be God's people, his chosen people forever. But then this is starkly contrasted with the Gentiles, which is basically everyone else other than the Jews. And so the Jews often looked down on the Gentiles because they were seen as outsiders who were excluded from this covenant promise. In uh, this Separation that Paul refers to, this would have been more than just figurative or metaphorical for his reading audience. This would have felt actually very tangible and very real to them when they read about these walls of hostility. And that is because they would have been very familiar with the temple of Jerusalem. So I want to talk about the temple of Jerusalem real quick. So the temple of Jerusalem was located in Israel. It was this place that people traveled from all sorts of different countries to come and make sacrifices to God and to worship him. And so while it was this really special, holy, sacred place of worshiping God, it was also a place of really, really clear separation. It was a place of really, really clear division marked by an enormous amount of walls, right? So this temple area was basically broken into sections and the outermost, the furthest outside section was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the only section that non-Jewish people could go to. This is the only place that the Gentiles could go to and then it was blocked off by a wall. Inside of this was the outer court where Jews were able to go. And then inside of this was the inner court where less Jews were able to go. And then inside of this was the temple itself where only the priests were able to access. And then inside of, even within the temple, there was still separation. There, in the innermost part of the temple, there was a really special room. It's called the Holy of Holies because it was the place where God's presence most fully and most powerfully resided. But even this room, even this place was still separated and blocked off. There was a curtain or a veil that hung here from the ceiling to the floor, separating this room and only the high priest, only one man could access this room on one day of the year. <clears throat> so basically you get this picture that every single person wants to be able to go further in. Every single person wants to be able to get closer and closer to get fully connected with access to God. However, because of nationality or background or religious status, people are blocked out. People are left at a certain level of separation. And on the furthest outside is the Gentiles. And I think this morning that we can probably relate to this. I think there's, all, there's been a time in all of our lives when we felt this way where we felt like an outsider on the outside looking in, looking in at what it would really mean to belong to that group of friends or looking in what would it really uh, look like to be connected to community here. Even in our relationships with God, I think we can oftentimes feel like the outsiders on the outside wishing and hoping that we could be fully connected. 
to God. And so Paul, in his letter here to the church in Ephesus, he wanted to encourage them, and really God wants to encourage us today that it is possible. It is possible to bridge these dividing walls, to tear them down and create a way that we can be fully, completely connected. Paul wanted them to know, this is my big idea today. Paul wanted them to know that we can all be reconciled. So today I'm going to talk a lot about this word of reconciliation and what it means. Today I want you to know that it is fully possible for all of us to be fully reconciled. It is fully possible for all of us to be fully reconciled. But what is it that I mean by this? Why is it that this reconciliation is even necessary? If you've looked at the world around us, like it's not a stretch. Like it's so easy to see that it appears to be built within human nature that we just love to build up walls to block others out and others love to build up walls to block us out. But the question is, where did this come from? Where did this tendency or this nature come from? Well, I believe that the reason for this man-to-man separation is because it was preceded first by man-to-God separation. When God created humanity, when he made you and me, mankind, he made us to enjoy total and complete connection to him for there to be no separation. However, we responded to God's offering of peace with acts of war and violence back against him. And this is what Paul and the other biblical authors call sin. Sin is this invisible force. It's an evil propensity that lives within the spirit and the heart of every single person that drives us, that leads us, that guides us to build up these walls that block us off from God. And it's a wall that once we've built up this wall, we are unable on our own. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many Lifehouse services that you attend, we are unable to knock down this wall on our own. But it doesn't only stop there. Once we've started building up this wall against God, we then start to build up walls of hostility between each other. We hide behind computer screens. We gather with our clique to talk trash about other people. And we isolate ourselves completely from anyone that sees the world differently from us. But let me encourage you. This is not how it is meant to be. And this is also not how it has to be this morning. Because as I said before, it is fully possible for all of us and every one of us to be fully reconciled. But to experience this reconciliation, there are two steps that we have to take to experience it. So I want to share them with you. The first of these steps that we have to take is that we are reconciled to God through Christ. This is step one. Step one of this full reconciliation is first we must be reconciled to God through Christ. And so let me read here. Picking up at verse 13, Paul writes, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people, from the two groups. So the truth is this. Even if we can't necessarily see or feel the walls that we've built up to separate ourselves from God, God has always been able to see and feel those walls that we've built up. And the consequence for our offense is separation from God, not only while we live on this earth, but also forever from God after we die. 
However, God refused to leave us far from him, and he chose instead to pursue us. God loved you so much. He loved the world so much that he was willing to take on and receive the penalty for our offense. He was willing to absorb our guilt, our shame, and our judgment. And I want you to know that he accomplished this. He did this through Jesus Christ, his one and only son. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came to this messed up earth, and he lived a completely perfect life that was totally separate from sin. And though he never sinned, he hung on a cross as the penalty for all of your and my sin was placed on Jesus. And as this sin was placed on Jesus, sin did what sin always does. And it created a temporary separation between Jesus Christ, the son, and God, the father. You could say that our sin once again built up a temporary wall between Jesus and God, the father. However, Once Jesus died, once he breathed his last breath on the cross, another form of separation took place that is a beautiful and wonderful form of separation. That once Jesus died and gave up his spirit, I mentioned that veil, that curtain that hung in the temple. When Jesus died, that veil was separated in half, demonstrating the fact that now we had full and complete access to the presence of God. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. So that now anyone, you, me, anyone, has the ability for God to knock down the walls that we've built up between us and him, to receive complete and total forgiveness. So that God's spirit, which raised Jesus back from death to life, comes to live within us and seals us forever so that our destiny is to live with God forever. You could say this. You could say that through Jesus' death on the cross, he kicked down the wall of hostility that we build up. And then you could say that through his resurrection, he built a bridge so that we could be connected to God forever. However, this morning, this reconciliation, it doesn't just end right here. It keeps on going. And so I want to read the next section, starting in verse 16. Let's read here. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So, so here's the incredible thing. Once we've first been reconciled to God, we have access to something else. Once we've been reconciled to God, we are now enabled so that we are enabled with others through Christ. Right? So the first step is that we are reconciled to God, but then because of that, It opens the door so that we are reconciled with others through Christ as well. Because I believe this. I believe that the only way that people can fully experience unity is if we first experience unity with God. Throughout all of history, there's been attempts to, to create governments, to create laws, to grit our teeth and try really hard to get along and sing Kumbaya, but it has absolutely never worked. We've gone in the absolute other direction. We can never skip past the first step of first experiencing unity with God. But why is that the case? The reason that that is the case is because of this. More than any of us realize, our our ideas have massive consequences. 
our ideas, the things that we think, they have massive, massive consequences. All of the hatred and division and the strife and futility that we see in the world around us out there, it has always started up here. It always starts inside up here before it's manifested out there. And so let me illustrate this for us. Let's say that there is a group of people and this group of people believe that life is nothing more than an incidental evolutionary process. That God did not design the world, that he did not design us, but we are here as a result of just a cosmic accident. So therefore, this means that there is no difference between human life and animal life. This means that natural selection is the law and the rule of the land. That the strong are meant to survive and that the better are meant to just keep on evolving and getting better and better. This right here, that right there, is a super foundational thinking that opens up a door to a really, really dark, slippery slope. It's a slippery slope that has some horrible, horrible steps to it, and I wanna walk us really quickly through five steps of this slippery slope. Step one, step one in this process is that one group of people looks at another group of people and sees them not just as having differences, but as being categorically different. One group sees another group as being completely different. So step two, step two, this goes a step further in that it's no longer seen as just a different group, categorically different, but they're seen as inferior. We believe that we are superior to this group and that they are less than us. Step three, step three, the inferiority of this other group is then seen as a hindrance to our superiority. Right? Our evolutionary process is being held back because of the existence of this inferior group. Step four is where things really start to get dark. To avoid this hindrance, one group then starts to consider strategies for separation. We start to find ways, how could we prevent this hindrance and separate and isolate this group from us? And then step five is the darkest step of all. Step five is when... when Separation is considered too temporary of a solution. Now groups begin to consider strategies for elimination. And I recognize, wow, you're like, wow, that jumped up quick. That really prog progressed quickly. But it was this very same line of logic that led to the acceptance of racism and slavery right here in the United States. It was this exact same line of logic that led Nazi Germany to the Holocaust. Hitler called the Holocaust the final solution. And as disgusting as it was, that is a fitting title because all they really did was they followed this bad line of thinking to its logical conclusion. And the end result was that 11 million people were exterminated, including 6 million Jews. And it all started with one really, really horrendous idea, which is that they are categorically different from us. And then it was all downhill from there. So I know this morning I'm pulling out these intense and kind of extreme examples. But the reason that I wanted to share that or wanted to go through that is because I wanted to drive home this point, that we had better guard what ideas we allow to creep into our minds because ideas have massive consequences. We had better be really, really cautious and careful that we do not begin to put people in categories are they homeless people? Is that their category? Is that their identity? 
Is that their description or are these citizens of our community that happen to be in a really difficult situation and they need help? Are they addicts and alcoholics or are these brothers and sisters, sons and daughters that once again, they're in the battle for their life right now? We have to be so careful that we don't put people in categories. What about that street in your neighborhood that you go out of your way to avoid? What about that neighborhood in our city that we go out of our way to drive around? If we're not careful, history has a brutal history of repeating itself. So the problem is that our, our preferences have a tendency to become prejudices. They move on from just being preferences and then we start to say that we are better than other people and maybe we'll add to that of saying that God is on our side, that God agrees with us, that he sees things the way that we see things, that God could not possibly love that person because they talk different, act different, look different, or God forbid they vote different from us. Even within Christianity, we have this tendency to want to put up walls and declare ourselves the guards of the gate of who gets to put in or to come in. But here in this passage, Paul makes it clear that God is not interested in any of that. Because we have to remember this. Even when we were enemies to God, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to clean up our act. So why would we expect others to do that? We would be so hypocritical if we did not extend the same grace to others that God first showed to us. God's mission is reconciliation. His purpose is to bring all people, regardless of what they look like, to himself. And so that means we don't get to decide our mission. That is our mission. Our mission is reconciliation to join with God and say, come on in to the family. So I've painted this picture already of how bad ideas can lead us to some really bad consequences. But on the flip side, as believers, our perspective completely flips the script. Our perspective is completely transformed because we know and believe that every single person intrinsically has deep value, deep significance, deep purpose in their life. And this value doesn't come from what they can achieve or accomplish, but rather it comes from the fact that they have been created by God, for God, and in the image of God. And so when this is the case, we start to see our neighbors, we start to see people in the community, not as strangers, but literally as family. We see them as brothers and sisters that maybe have yet to come fully into the family of God. And so here's what that means. It means that it is a problem when we criticize people. Here's why. If you criticize a painting, you are actually criticizing the artist that painted it. If you criticize a book, you are actually criticizing the author that wrote that book. So that means that every time we tear down, dehumanize, and criticize a person, we are ultimately criticizing the same creator that created you. And that's not a good idea. I don't, I don't highly recommend that. But instead, we're called to be different. We're called to unite where the world wants to try to divide us. We are called to prefer others rather than allowing our preferences to become prejudices. Okay, <laughs> so so far this morning, the majority of what I've shared with you has kind of been preventative. It said, hey, here's what we're not gonna do. Here's what we need to avoid. However, for true community, true unity to be experienced, it's so much more than just passive. It's so much more than just preventative. We need to actually be proactive. True community is so much more than just simply getting along and not cussing each other out or thinking bad thoughts about each other. It's about so much more than that. So let me directly ask you this morning, can you say today that you are truly connected in godly community? Are you really? Like, are, are you really? 
I think that coming to service is so important. So good. So glad you're here. Come every week. Don't be a twice a month or be an every single weeker and keep showing up. It's going to help shape your spiritual life. Okay, but with that being said, do people really know what's going on in your life? Do other believers really know what you're battling and struggling with? Do they really know your story? Are they able to spot when you're doing well and then can they easily see the difference of when you're struggling? Do you have people that are speaking into your life, pointing you and pushing you towards Christ and are you doing the same thing for other people? Because I can get up here on the stage and preach for 30 minutes about unity and how important it is, but it is nothing more than lip service if we are not actually, actively, for real, no joking, no kidding, actually in each other's lives, up in each other's lives. And the very best way that we can do this here at LifeHouse is life groups. The very best way that we can live out this message of community and unity today, I believe, is life groups. I want you to know that life groups is not this cute little side wing add-on ministry for people that are really outgoing and social. I believe in the bottom of my heart that probably one of the most important ministries that LifeHouse has to offer is actually life groups. Just in case if you don't know, what life groups is is small group communities that meet outside of this 60 minutes on Sunday. 60 minutes on Sunday is awesome, but we need to be connected beyond that. And so as I close today, I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons why you, I'm looking at you, need to be a part of a life group. So reason number one is this. We need to be reminded that there is a real intelligent enemy to God. His name is Satan or the devil. He hates God and wants to rob as much glory from God as he possibly can. And his strategy from the beginning of time has always been to steal, kill, and destroy he is described as a lion that prowls about looking for who he can devour. That's his strategy. That's what he wants to do. And so I don't know if you've ever seen a lion hunt, but the way that lions hunt is they don't run headfirst at a herd. A herd that's unified, they don't just jump right into it. They know that they're gonna get messed up if that happens. But instead what the lions do is they keep their eyes open for the ones that are drifting to the side or falling behind and then they surround them. They take them down. And I believe that this is what life groups do. This is being connected within the herd. My heart breaks because I've, I've seen it happen. I've real deal seen the enemy Satan do this. I've seen him pounce on people and take them down when they've come into isolation. And I don't want that to be you. I want you to be surrounded with community that's gonna guard you. Number two, we, uh, our spiritual growth will always be hindered unless if we're connected in community. You are putting a cap and a lid on your ability to grow spiritually if you're not connected to community. I would pay you $10 if you could find somewhere in the Bible an example of someone that walked really, really close with the Lord, had a vibrant faith, but did it in isolation. Give you 10 bucks. Like, like somebody's gonna find like one weird example and I'm like, have to pay a bunch of people. Uh, but seriously, time and time and time again, everyone is connected to community. And maybe the best example of this is Jesus. If Jesus, the almighty son of God that could snap his fingers and raise people from death to life, if he had to be a part of a life group, you better believe you need to be a part of a life group. Jesus made it a value and ultimately it's because of that that we're here today. He had a life group and now the church is still here today. It's that important. Number three, third reason I wanna give you is we can't really invite people into community unless if we are actually a community. So we can have this message that's all about unity is so great but if we're not really actually connected, what do we have to offer the world that the world is not already offering people? People need more than just 60 minutes on Sunday. And so if we, the church, can't offer them true connection and community, man, we have fallen so short of our mission. So it has to start with us. It has to start with these rows turning into circles. 
on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, people getting together in houses and coffee shops to focus in and pour into each other's lives. So as we, okay, uh, a couple more news. Okay, so it just so happens, pure coincidence, today happens to be group launch. And that's a joke. Today, out in our lobby, we have the majority of our Lighters for Campus life group leaders here. Uh, today, these life group leaders would love to connect with you. And so you're gonna leave in a second, in just a couple of minutes. The tendency is we always go right. We always flow out to the right. But today I wanna challenge you. I wanna actually dare you. Would you turn to the left? Because we've got group launch. We've got balloons and lollipops and life group leaders over here to the left. Would you take a step of faith today? Would you make it kind of a symbolic step to say, God, this year, 2020, I'm not just gonna go with the flow, but God, I wanna be different. I want this year to be different. I wanna get connected into community. Check out the life groups we have. Get connected to one of them. In a moment, Pastor Dave is gonna come up here and he's gonna lead us through something that's called communion, which I think is one of the most beautiful, powerful pictures for what we've talked about today. But before we do, I think it's really important that we take a moment and then we pause, that I create space for you to have a conversation with God. Two groups of people I wanna talk to. First, I said that for every single one of us, our sin has built up a wall that we can never knock down no matter how hard we try. And so for some of us in this room this morning, maybe you have never had a moment where you have asked God through Jesus's death on the cross to knock down that wall so that you can be connected to him. Today, I wanna invite you, why would you wait? Ask God to forgive you of your sins so that you can be in that unity with God today. Second group of people is those of us that have made that decision and that declaration in our life, but now we are allowing walls of hostility between us and our neighbors to still exist. Would you take a moment and ask God to shine a spotlight on the relationships where God needs to tear down a wall so that you can be in connection with those people? Would you take a moment, bow your heads, have a conversation with God? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.